This episode is sponsored by Macmillan Audio. If you're taking a road trip this spring, or even just spending a lot of time commuting or shuttling kids around, having an audiobook ready can make all that time so much more enjoyable. Did you hear about Kitty Carr by Crystal Smith Paul is a glamorous new release set in old Hollywood that will have you sitting in the driveway, still listening, because you just have to finish another chapter. And it was just chosen for Reese's Book Club. In the novel, white movie star Kitty Carr Tate dies and bequeaths her multi-million dollar estate to three young, wealthy black women, prompting questions and controversy. The audiobook is read by Ariel Blake, Kaneda Kanutu, and Lynette Nicholas, and is perfect for fans of The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. Start listening to Did You Hear About Kitty Carr by debut author Crystal Smith-Paul now, wherever audiobooks are sold. Hello and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer, Laura Zara-Bukinski, and today Catherine Sherbrooke is here to discuss her new novel, The Hidden Life of Aster Kelly. Hollywood and Broadway take center stage in this evocative and immersive story of a 1940s runway model who makes a decision to protect those she loves, and her daughter who confronts the repercussions of her mother's secrets decades later. Catherine Sherbrooke is the author of New York Times notable novel, Leaving Coy's Hill, a Massachusetts Book Awards Fiction Honors winner. Her additional books are Finding Home, A Family Memoir, and Fill the Sky. She serves as chair of the board of Grub Street and lives with her family just south of Boston. Catherine Sherbrooke, thanks for coming on and congratulations on the new book. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yes, I, um, I so enjoyed kind of falling into this world of old Hollywood. Um, and I just love reading about kind of interesting women from the past. And also I love the dual timeline aspect of it. So, so many great things to enjoy about this book. Um, so for listeners who haven't gotten to take a peek yet, can you tell us a little bit more about the hidden life of Astra Kelly and um, the characters in this novel? Yes, absolutely. So Astra Kelly of the title is a young woman who arrives in Hollywood hopeful um, of becoming a fashion designer. That's her dream. Um, And she ends up getting convinced by Fernando Tivoli, who's the up and coming designer who she is hoping will mentor her to um, become a runway model and a stand-in model actually for Lauren Bacall, because he's working to win a contract Um, to outfit the stars of a major studio. So two of them become fast friends and become pretty quickly entangled romantically with um, one movie star and one of the heads of Galaxy Studios and things begin to get very complicated. So (laughs) after, uh, you know, there's, there's this glamorous side to Hollywood, but also a sort of a dark underbelly and, um, Aster faces a crisis and makes a split second decision um, designed to protect herself and those around her and it, and it ends up changing the trajectory of her life. And then we pick up uh, with her daughter named Lissy, who's an aspiring Broadway star in the 70s. And when some of Aster's secrets from the past sort of come rearing up, they, they blindside both Aster and Lissy and force them to confront Um, and really question everything they ever thought to be true. So there's lots of intrigue, um, secrets, plot twists, but also hopefully a fun look behind the scenes of fashion and cinema in Hollywood and Broadway in New York. Yes, I I loved getting to sort of 
um, inhabit these worlds. And then, yes, there are there are moments where I sort of like gasped out loud because I didn't <laughs> see things coming. And um, <laughs> yeah, it was great. And I wondered, um, I think I read that um, the Astor Kelly character had some roots in real life. Is that true? Yeah, so my mother was a runway model in Hollywood in the 40s. And um, she, but she wouldn't talk about that time in her life. So it was always a big mystery to me, even though I found out over time that she, in fact, was was hobnobbing with some of the biggest stars of the time. So we're talking like the Bob Hopes, Roy Rogers, Cary Grants of the world. And yet she wouldn't talk about it. So this was my um, sort of creative solution to all of my questions, just wondering how a, how a gal from New York could end up in those circles and come home burdened by secrets. So, Oh, so interesting. Yeah. Were you able to, I mean, I guess if she kept every, everything secret, were you able to draw on any of like her stories or did she keep things from that time period or did you really have to research from scratch? Um, so she, she would let slip a few details once in a while. So there were, there were some details that, crept in and, and always stuck in my memory. For example, she had a, a ring that was given to her by her roommate in LA after that roommate had a heated breakup with Cary Grant. Oh and my gosh. As, as you know, right. That's the kind of thing she would just sort of, you know, say, Oh yeah, that came from Cary Grant. Like what mom? Um, <laughs> so as you know, having read the book, there's a ring that's important to this, uh, the story. So there, there are things like that. And then I was able to do some research. Um, I figured out who uh, her first husband was. She, I, I failed to say she came home to New Jersey, divorced with a child, my older sister, and wouldn't even talk to my sister about who her father was. So I was able to do some research into that, which, um, which also further elucidated to me um, how she was involved in celebrity circles. So this is interesting because in my own writing life, I'm sort of trying to write a novel that has to do with family secrets and sort of based on a real person. And I wonder for you, was it difficult to separate your mother from the Astor Kelly character and like give that character their own trajectory and sort of like mixing what's real with what's not real? Could you talk about like kind of developing that character and sort of the plot. Sure. Knowing that there's also a real story there. Yeah. That's a really good question. Um, in the beginning, when I very first started writing the book, I definitely had my mother in my mind. And I think it, Astra Kelly didn't really come to life as a character until I was able to detach Astra Kelly from my mother, let her make very different decisions than maybe my mother would have made or give her, very different um, skills and faults and et cetera. I, I had to allow myself to see this person as a fully fictional character and not feel handcuffed to trying to represent who my mother was. So as soon as I was able to do that, then the story, um, the story really took off. Yeah. That's interesting. And even, yeah, I would imagine like there's so many holes you have to fill in and you, you right. could only do that if you really made them, made them fictional. 
Um, yes, completely. Well, and she's my mother is sadly no longer with us. I'm not sure I could have written this book if she were, but my father's still alive. And I actually gave him the final copy last week. And, and I had to remind him, you know, I said, there's a lot in here that will remind you of mom, but it's not mom. So don't, <laughs> yeah. don't that when you see things that, you know, seem very different to you. Yeah. Well, I sort of love hearing about the research process and I'm curious maybe what stood out in terms of the best ways that you were able to kind of find what you needed to capture this like glamorous Hollywood world where there are like different books that you read were really help that were really helpful or um, yes. how did you go about it? For sure. So I mentioned that Astra Kelly um, works as a stand-in model for Lauren Bacall. I actually read Lauren Bacall's memoir which was incredibly helpful. Um, she just gave a lot of detail about what it was like to be a contract actress at a huge studio. And of course she was involved with Humphrey Bogart and all the big stars of the time. So that was really helpful. I'm also a big fan of vintage magazines. So I got my hands on, you know, the life magazines, the look magazines, which both were helpful because of their articles and pictures around stars of the time, but even the advertisements just tell you so much about that time and throw you in completely into what the mindset was of people during that era. Um, and similarly for the 1970s storyline, I, I relied a lot on a couple of documentaries that were made about the making of some major Broadway shows. And I'm a very visual person. So being able to see what it looked like and, and hear interviews from the actors and the directors and those directly involved about what they went through in putting up a show um, was really, really helpful for me. Yeah. I loved getting to sort of go back and forth in the timelines and, and be in that Broadway world did it take you some time to figure out that like that was the other storyline that you wanted having the daughter kind of trying to make it on Broadway? Yeah, it did. Aster Kelly's story for obvious reasons, since it was inspired by my mom came first and kind of came almost in whole cloth. And then, and then I did need to, to figure out what um, Lissy's journey was going to be. And what I decided to do, I picked Broadway for, Many reasons. One is I wanted Lissy to have a similar um, journey as her mother in terms of the process of becoming an artist and how difficult that can be and confidence or lack of confidence and where you find encouragement. So I wanted to put her in an artistic field. Also, I thought in a place where fame can come into play, how much are you in it to hit it big? Um, Lissy in particular feels like she has a legacy to uphold. Um, and then the, both the, the dangers, I guess you could say that can, can arise from becoming a public persona and the decisions mm. that, that people are required to make in that situation really helped thicken, thicken the plot. So those were kind of the, the thoughts that went into me making her a, a Broadway actress. Was it challenging? I always think with um, 
dual timeline or even multiple perspectives, it can be so challenging to sort of weave it all together and like you're building the tension and pace, but in two different worlds. How did you kind of approach that? Yeah, structure is always a challenge. Um, At first, I thought I would alternate chapter by chapter. Instead, for those who haven't read the book, I, I alternate in in fairly significant chunks of time. I think the the most complicated piece of this is because this story has, you know, secrets at the heart of it, knowing when to switch timelines. So the reader knew enough. There are times when the reader knows more than say Lissy knows, which is interesting, but then you also want to keep certain things hidden from the reader. So that was interesting. I also think that the point at which each time I decided to stop one storyline and go back to the other, those, you know, both storylines are in a conversation with each other. So I had to think about where each character was in their journey so that that particular jump would, wouldn't feel out of the blue that what was going on for the characters, even though they're, you know, 25 years apart in time, were still relevant to each other. Yeah. Well, there are so many parts that I um, really gravitated toward. And actually, you know, as much as I loved the Broadway world and the Hollywood world, I don't think it's giving too much away to say that we wind up also on Martha's Vineyard. And yeah. although I guess, so by then, Aster, which, is she still going by Aster by the time she's in Martha's Vineyard? Yes, yes. Okay, she is. So Aster is kind of finds... Martha's Vineyard is sort of this like safe place to land. And like you, I am um, also live in Massachusetts. So it was kind of fun to see that world brought to life and for it to be, you know, it's not as glamorous, but she finds, you know, happiness there. And I wondered, I think you, did you grow up there? Or maybe you spent time there? What, what was sort of the significance with wanting to set part of her story um, on, Martha, on Martha's Vineyard? Yeah, so I grew up spending summers on on Cape Cod, but actually fairly recently um, discovered Martha's Vineyard and and my husband and I actually have a house there now. And I fell in love with the island in part because it is so welcoming to artists, just incredibly supportive in every way and artists of all ilks. So I thought that made it an interesting place for Aster. And I'm also fascinated by places like that that are you know, they're now thought of as these thriving summer communities, but that's been around for a very long time as a full-time community. And back in the seventies, there were not many people who were there. So um, I just had fun kind of imagining what the, what the Island was like back then. Yeah, that was fun to read about. Well, my other sort of local question, I know you're really involved with Boston Scrub Street Writing mm-hmm. Center, and I'd love to hear. I'm guessing that maybe that's had a big, big, been a big part of your writing journey. Sure, yes, Scrub Street has been instrumental to my writing career. I was in business for a long time before I decided to finally turn toward my childhood dream of writing, but I didn't really have much experience with the craft of fiction. And so I started taking classes at Grub Street and Grub Street has classes on everything from the craft through to the marketplace and how you get your work 
out in the world. And so I took full advantage of <clears throat> all of it. It also has a wonderful community. So I was able to meet so many other writers who were going through the same things at the same time or writers who were steps ahead of me in terms of having publications out there in the world. Um, and so I, I'm, I say all the time, I would not have any books in the world out without the support of Grub Street. Yeah, they're wonderful. And, you know, for even for people who aren't um, in this area, they offer so many classes online now. I know for me, it's been easier, you know, with kids and, and not living super close to take more of their classes and things virtually. So really anyone can take part and they just have such great teachers and have yeah. some Great yeah, team partners through there, and they just do a great yeah, job. We have, we have students from around the world now because, as you say, with the ability to teach classes virtually, um, geography is no longer a limit. So they're yeah. putting classes on anything you could imagine. Yeah, it's great. It's such a helpful resource. Well, I also wanted to ask, too, I was so excited, well, Leaving Coys Hill um, won a Massachusetts Book Award or was a, um, a fiction honors winner. Yeah. And that was so exciting. I got to go to that ceremony and uh, it was just really fun to see all these books and authors honored. And I just wanted to hear a little bit about what that was like, because I'm imagining that was just a very meaningful day and just um, I'd love to hear a little bit about what it was like to kind of have Leaving Coys Hill uh, meet such success. Yeah, it was really wonderful and so validating. Um, so Leaving Coys Hill, for people who don't know, the book is based very closely on the real life story of Lucy Stone, who's a Massachusetts gal and was really the first woman to speak out publicly on women's rights in the mid 1800s. So I felt this great responsibility to, you know, she has, she was famous in the day, but her name has kind of fallen out of um, the history books, really, and at least culturally, um, people don't know who she is anymore. So I felt a great responsibility toward um, getting her story out in the world. And so to have it recognized was was really amazing. And I have to give the, the Massachusetts Center for the book just incredible kudos. I, I learned it's the, the Massachusetts Book Awards are the largest book awards of their kind in the country. And they devote so much time to reading entries across a broad range of categories and then having a long list and selecting honors winners and ultimate winners. And then at the state house, as you saw, it's so fun that you were there. The legislators come to personally present the awards to their constituents. Um, so depending on, on where you live and the room was just full of, you know, state senators and Congress people and um, that they, they really spent the time to, to honor the importance of, the written word was was really moving, and to be part of that and have my work recognized was just uh, it, it's it's a absolute highlight of my writing career so far, no question. Yeah, it was wonderful. It made me very happy to live in a state that values um, writing and reading and creativity so much. And it was nice to finally gather. I had um, I had actually judged 
the picture book category back in 2020 and um, they had never been able to gather. So it was really fun to get to see like three years worth of authors and, and books. And yeah, that was yeah. very special. So um, yeah, kudos to the Massachusetts Center for the book as well. Hello, Bookish Home podcast listeners. Thanks to our friend and host, Laura, for inviting me, Robin Witten, the editor and founder of Audiophile Magazine, to celebrate the 14th year of our beloved audiobook program for teens. It's called Audiobook Sync, and it launches on April 27th. Teens anywhere and everywhere, including international teens, can get 28 free audiobooks during the 14-week program. We have fantasy, fiction, and romance audiobooks, and really there's an audiobook to please every ear. So go to audiobooksync.com to register and find out more about Audiophile's free program and the free audiobooks for teens. And you can also find us at Audiobook Sync on Twitter and Instagram. Well, I'm kind of curious to, you know, as your kind of, as I'm thinking about those two books, is it something for you as you kind of continue on with your writing where you are, are you really drawn to maybe like um, bringing interesting women's stories to life? Is that kind of a theme for you or are you kind of moving on to something like totally different next? Yeah, I would say that the thread that runs through all of my books um, is around women trying to find their voices, women in difficult situations, either because of the the time or the culture, or the set of expectations put on them um, and, and developing strong female characters who then can push through these limitations for themselves. That, that is something I'm always interested in reading about. And all of my books, even though they're, they're quite different from each other, all have that same theme. And I, I don't expect that to go away anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. And well, I'll just say too, with the Leaving Chloe's Hill book, it does make me think just bringing more recognition to women that aren't getting their due. I mean, I was sort of ashamed to feel like I have lived in Massachusetts most of my life. I feel like maybe we glossed over Lucy Stone, maybe in school. It's like, why um, Why is this woman not getting her due or why are we not learning more about her? So I feel like historical fiction can really um, just help us, uh, yeah, just kind of bring more attention to women that, that deserve more. Um, yeah. Are you, sure. yeah, yeah, are you kind of um, on the lookout for um, a next project or are you already um, kind of deep into that? I am um I am into my next project. It's it's in I would say the deep percolation phase. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm kind of mulling things over and, and marinating in in the topic um before I dive in. So I, I do have a, a strong sense of what that, that book is about. It's a little too early yet to to talk about. Um but I'm I'm I am at the same time always on the lookout for the next thing and the thing after that, I have a long list of, of ideas um, that, you know, may or may not percolate up to the surface. 
Yeah. And once you sort of know what you're tackling next, what is your process like? Do you do just tons of research first for a while? Or are you researching while you're writing? Um, what's your process like? So it really depends. For leaving Coys Hill, because it was such a deeply uh, biographical biographical book in the way that I really wanted to, because I was representing a real person and also an era that I didn't know well. I, I did research and read about Lucy Stone for about a year before I even started writing. Um, but that's unusual. I would say I tend to um, usually start writing first. And then as I dig into the story, figure out, what kinds of things I'm going to need to know, what settings, what time periods, what details might be important, and then research as I go. Do you do any, I mean, I guess in, in recent years, it's been tricky, but do you do any like travel or anything for your research? Or is it mostly, you know, reading up on different things? Yeah, I haven't. Well, I guess the, the answer is that it really depends. First of all, thank God for the internet. There's so much that we can do online. And a lot of my research for leaving Coise Hill was during COVID times. So um, even more important that I could get on to even, you know, old digitized newspapers from the 1800s are online. I didn't even have to go to libraries for that. But there is nothing that compares quite like to actually being in a place. So my first novel, um, Fill the Sky, takes place entirely in Ecuador, in a small mountain village in Ecuador. And it's actually a place that I spent a week. Um, it wasn't for research of a book. I was actually traveling there and then found it to be such an incredible setting. I wanted to place a novel there. But having experienced it, met the people, um, there's just a different energy to different places. So that was instrumental. And then even for leaving Coys Hill, even though I did most of the research, as I said, online, I was able to go to her homestead in Western Massachusetts and walk the land because it's a preserved property. And oh. there was something about that experience that was magical. I, I had, you know, as I said, already been reading about her for about a year. I had, I had some of the manuscript written and then walking the land was just, it, it was just hard to replicate that. I felt like being in that town where she grew up um, and on the very land that she loved just helped solidify a lot of things for me. Yeah. And do they have like a little museum there or anything, or is it just, just the homestead? Yeah, they don't. Unfortunately, the house isn't even still standing, but part of the foundation oh, okay. is there. Um so it's mostly just land, but she was very attached to that land and it had an impact on her, that sort of nature all around her. And so, um, and then of course, you know, knowing she walked to school every day and being able to be on that road and have a sense of how far that was and then go to the little downtown and, and, um, and experience that was, was really neat. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, did you have a favorite um, like book or anything you read to help you kind of channel her voice and, and things like that? Yeah, the most important um, pieces of research were or documents. I was very lucky that there are two books which are um, 
consolidated troves of letters. So one is between her and her best friend from college, and the other is between her and and her eventual husband. So being able to read her letters and lots of them were incredible for absorbing her voice, understanding the cadence. Also, she was, she was a master orator. And so I had to write a lot of speeches to put in her book. And so getting a feel for the, the cadence of her words, at least how she wrote them really helped me write those speeches and, and just get into her mindset and feel like I, I knew her pretty well. Yeah, I can imagine that um, being really helpful. I love being able to kind of really sink into the world of the hidden life of Astor Kelly. And I'm wondering for you, are there any books that stand out lately that you really got lost in, like, like I was able to do with your book? <laughs> uh, yes, I, gosh, there's so many beautiful books that have come out of late. One that stands out to me immediately, I think it was, I would say it was my favorite book of last year was Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. The, the language in that is extraordinary and her ability to bring the op- op- opioid crisis in Appalachia to life through these characters was it just extraordinary, um, blew me away. I also really enjoyed um, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, which has is a pretty popular book, but the storytelling in that book is is quite amazing and the ability to go back and forth between timelines as we were discussing. Um, yes. I just finished that one the other day. Actually, my book club is, is reading it and oh, no um, there'll be a lot to discuss. Yes. Lots to discuss. So those are two yeah. that come to mind for sure. Yeah. I'll definitely link to those. Well, I hope listeners go pick up the hidden life of Astor Kelly at their local bookstore, um, get those library holds in. I think people are really going to enjoy that old Hollywood setting and then also getting to um, in the other timeline experience kind of trying to make it on Broadway and putting a Broadway show together and yes so many twists and turns and secrets Um, it was just a wonderful read I think I devoured the whole thing in a couple of days and um, (laughs) I just really enjoyed it so I think listeners will as well and Catherine just thank you so much for taking the time to come on and um, hopefully I'll I'll see you at some point at a Grub Street class yes I I hope (laughs) we will And, and thank you so much for having me I'm delighted to hear how much you enjoyed the book For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.